housing insecurity and evictions are to black women as mass incarceration has been to black men and that the generational impacts and the invisible scars that uh, impact mothers and their children are felt for generations to come. And it's really hard to, to heal from that, especially after bouts of chronic homelessness, which, which often result from evictions. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast from the ONB Institute at UC Berkeley. My name is Mark Abizade, host of the podcast, along with Irfan Maradi, a research fellow at our institute. In this episode, we speak with Carol Fife, an organizer, mother, and director of the Oakland Office of the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, also known as ACE. Earlier this year, she was involved in coordinating the Moms for Housing campaign in which five Black women took over a vacant home on Magnolia Street in Oakland. She joins us to speak about the history of speculative housing and its impacts on the Black community, the looming eviction crisis, houselessness, and police violence. Here was our conversation. Today, we wanted to talk a little bit about housing justice and rent is on everyone's mind, especially as... We're reading reports of uh, a looming uh, eviction crisis as COVID-related renters' protections and tenant protections are ex- set to expire in the coming uh, days and weeks. And you have lots of experience in eviction defense. I think a lot of people around the country know you through your fight alongside Moms for Housing as they fought their eviction on in, in Oakland. Can you just kind of give us a reminder of how that story played out? Well, it started... Um with several individuals coming to me separately uh, asking for housing support or like um, resources that were available. And um, me knowing in my heart that nothing was available to them. Uh, It was five women over the course of a couple months and they were all very uh, just spent over the fact that they'd been looking for housing with families and couldn't find anything in in the city that they were born and raised in. And um, one of the individuals who's actually not a mother, but someone who frequents my uh, place of employment uh, was coming in regularly. And I was kicking myself because she's a senior and is chronically homeless. And I, I found out that she had been hospitalized for a suicide attempt. And I still, to this day, um, am not really clear if it was because I was told by the person who, who brought me the message, one of our staff said it's because she needed a bed. Um, and she wanted to sleep indoors. And so, yeah, all that just weighed on me. Um, and especially understanding it through, the lens of being formerly homeless myself with my children. Um, I was just like, y'all, we got to organize. So I, I, I called everybody together um, and they were all frustrated with me for having no resources. But that's why I'm like, look, I don't. I don't have resources. I don't have access to property. I don't have access to people who have property. I don't have any money, um, but I have a network um, and I know how to organize. And if you all trust the process, Um, I'm going to make sure that you have a place to stay, uh, not knowing if I could actually make it happen. But I was like, after all of the 
you know, heartfelt pleas. And then this, the, the recent suicide attempt, I was like, I got to just put 110% um, of my energy and time and thought into, you know, making this issue, the fact that they don't have any place to stay um, on the hearts and minds of everyone we could um, get to pay attention. And I don't think you can live in California and not experience the housing crisis in one way or another. So because that that's the reality that we're all experiencing by either having to pay rent that is ex, ex, exorbitantly high, um, going past uh, encampments on a regular basis and just seeing how many people have been displaced onto the streets or, you know, being a house flipper or a, a landlord or everybody has experiences with housing and everyone has experiences with being or having a mother, even if that mother has never been in your life, even if that mother is a grandmother or a, a parent, everyone came here through a mother. So it, I think this campaign is something that everyone could relate to. Um, some folks had violent reactions to it um, and there were death threats. Um, and some folks were like, this is inspirational. And it's so important that you all stepped out uh, to talk about homelessness and housing insecurity, especially its impacts on the Black community in Oakland and um, Black women um, in specific. So yeah, it, it got a lot of attention. We at ACE were doing a housing week of action. So cities across the state of California were bringing attention to the housing crisis in, in their, their particular cities in Los Angeles and Richmond, Oakland, Sacramento, San Diego. And in Oakland, we decided to do several actions and it was a coalition effort. A lot of people were doing different things, banner drops, marches, um, and this group of moms uh, did a housing occupation. It's not something that's out of the ordinary to um, to ace. Uh, it was a tactic used to defend uh, foreclosures of homes and to the the aftermath of the uh, foreclosure crisis. So um, you know, folks are were familiar with the with the tactic, but this one was specifically um, created to make the public pay attention to the extreme disparity that's that's occurring in, in the city. And um, I think Michael Desmond in his book, Evicted, said that um, housing insecurity and evictions are to black women as mass incarceration has been to black men. And that the generational impacts and the invisible scars that uh, impact mothers and their children uh, are felt for generations to come. And it's really hard to, to heal from that, especially after bouts of chronic homelessness, which, which often result from evictions. Um, so yeah, I think that's partly why it, it got so much attention because as Malcolm X said, El Haj Malik El Shabazz, that black women are the most unprotected human beings on the planet. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the point is, is that that is um, a reality we didn't want to continue to glaze over in our city. And I'm proud to stand beside these women, behind these women, 
to uh, lift up this particular issue because it impacts all of us. So could you remind us what happened with that occupation uh, with the house that they were sheltering in? And can you talk about when the police invaded um, and then how that case uh, was concluded? Uh, We took the home, I believe it was November 18th. And every single day after the initial occupation, we were waiting for the sheriffs or the police or some type of security agency to engage us. And day one, we sent a letter to uh, Wedgwood Properties asking for a conversation about this house that had been vacant for for years. And they were the owners of the house, Wedgwood Properties. Correct. And there was some funny business going on with them, but they never, ever one time in this whole ordeal talked to us. They never responded to us. Um, they hired a high paid, um, PR firm in order to address us. And they went through all kinds of different scams to try to, to get the, the moms out of the house, but it didn't work. And so ultimately our our strategy, um, that we were working out on a week by week basis was to file for right to possession, claiming that this house had not been used for years and um, the moms were claiming a right to possess the home in order to make it into a productive um, place and habitable place habitable place for people to live affordably. So that court case played out for a while. Um, we ultimately uh, lost. The judge dismissed it, although he deliberated on it for quite a bit and was torn about what to do, but there's just, there wasn't any clear precedent in the law to um, grant a right of possession. So an eviction followed, uh, a notice of eviction. And, you know, everyone knew that the goal was to engage in good trouble and nonviolent civil disobedience to really highlight the contradictions about who actually has access to housing and who doesn't. Because we, we believe that it follows historical trends of um, redlining, segregation, ha- discriminatory housing practices, and they, which is the generational impact that um, you know, ra- racist housing policy has had on, on Black folks, and is trickling down to other people as well. So on the, they gave us five. Was it? I can't remember if it was three to five, three or five days, but um, I believe it was five days um, before the sheriffs would come. So we had attorneys trying to negotiate and and with the um, sheriffs to not be violent because we heard word that they were going to use any force necessary to remove anyone in the the home. And so the attorneys were like, these are women and children. There's no force needed. And the the sheriffs and uh, Ahern and their representatives were completely dismissive and disregarded um, the attorney's attempt at negotiation were like, yeah, if they don't want to get hurt, they need to just leave. So, um, you know, they came and they brought forces to back up that they were actually coming um, in in a very militarized and aggressive fashion. And um, I'd never seen anything like that outside of a movie in my entire life. 
where there were armored vehicles, like multiple armored vehicles. I can't count the number of, of uh, police vans and cars. Um, and there were like three different type of troops there. Like there's some with helmets, there's some with like tactical gear, there's some regularly dressed sheriffs. I'd never seen anything like this um, before. And it was just insane. And um, I think that's that's part of why it's it's gotten so much attention because there was such an, a, a use and show of force that it was, uh, yeah, it, it was just shocking to everyone. And I think that was the intention to shock and actually do harm to uh, some of the folks who came out to support. Uh, they uh, mentioned it in their post news conference that they were coming to address particular activists. And it's funny that you see the um, film reenactment of Chairman Fred Hampton's life, because that's one of the, the activists that they said was um, a problem that was supporting the moms. It was Ch Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. Um, and Turha Ak of the Community Ready Corps were, were identified by the Alameda County Sheriff's as uh, two particular figures that needed to be addressed. And you can tell with the type of officers that they sent, even they were like larger than uh, normal. They're larger than the sheriffs that you see riding around in their patrol cars. These are like, like huge, they were giants. And so, um, yeah, robot, a robot to enter the home, a battle ram that they tried to say that the um, home was barricaded, but they're also not acknowledging that there had been multiple break-in attempts at the home. We actually chased someone in a white van um, away from the home that was taking things out of the garage one day we were coming back from court when we filed the right to possession. Um, so they, they tried to frame us, not just the officers, but the, uh, but the PR firm that Wedgwood hired as terrorists. Um, is the same way that they're attempting to do now for us standing up for housing justice is label us as terrorists, but that's just causing more people to get behind us in this fight for um, to make housing a human right. Yeah, I, I remember reading that the sheriff's department released a statement, or maybe in, was in private correspondence. I can't remember, but describing uh, people present at the uh, protest as. Uh, quote, anarchists and criminal elements as, as though, um, yeah, as though there is some like sort of like seditious activity going on in, in, in the, the fight for housing justice. The case of these heavily militarized police coming to evict uh, mothers and seems like such a salient example of how the state is interested in protecting property rights through police violence. And in this moment in which, you know, police divestment has come to the forefront of so much national discourse. Can you explain for us and illuminate for us how housing justice is related, is connected to policing? Sure. Um, it goes back to the inception of this country and the constitution and the federalist papers. And I've been um, doing more research around these issues lately. It's be because uh, property rights and the, the rights of landowners has always been the primary focus of um, 
building wealth in this country. And it's, it's actually the, what, one of the things that kills democracy because the more wealth that people are able to amass through owning and leasing out land and being lords of land, um, the, the more democracy dies because those are the same folks who are paying in, in some cases, in some cities around the country, paying for their own private police forces or subsidizing municipal police forces with, um, financial contributions and, and, and different ways to augment existing bloated police budgets that take up almost half, if uh, not more, of, of uh, urban centers general purpose fund. Um, and so their goal is to protect property and property owners and, and their wealth. And uh, I, I, I just feel like that's part of why there's this this cry, just thinking about Breonna Taylor and the fact that the law enforcement came into what was supposed to be a safe and secure place and took her life. Um, it's the same energy that uh, police harass unsheltered folks for trying to find places to stay who end up sleeping on our sidewalks because of this hoarding of, of land and hoarding of, of property where people can actually live. And it's because housing is a commodity and it needs to be an actual human right. So in, as long as we have a, a, an economic system where wealth is uh, built through land ownership and equity is, is part of building that wealth and people are aspiring to get as much as they can, we're going to see uh, the police who are the shock troops of gentrification and the shock troops for speculative housing continue to enact violence on black bodies around uh, the protection of those who have versus those who don't. I think that's a really powerful way to put it. And I think it really illuminates that idea of land speculation or real estate speculation and treating housing as a commodity and not a human right. From your perspective and from what you know and what you've studied, do you think that under the current housing system that we can eliminate homelessness or do you think this is like a necessary part of the system? And if not, if it's not something that can be eliminated under the market-based model, what are the pathways that you would advocate for to, to ensure that everyone does have a right to housing? I think it should be um, publicly funded like the uh, housing um, units uh, post-war, in the post-war era when the New Deal actually helped white families make it through the Depression. Um, and I, I don't want to say, sound like it was just white families. There was some um, support for, for, for Black folks um, after the New Deal, but it was marginal in comparison. And that's why we are pushing for a Black New Deal, because we've never been able to recover from the, you know, post-emancipation uh, and then just trying to get a leg up, which, uh, like I said, white families were able to do with, with subsidies from the government to actually um, purchase homes. And, you know, after this great loss of Black wealth um, from, the, from the last foreclosure crisis, um, it's it's going it's going to deliver a blow with this current uh, cliff that we're facing, 
um, specifically in California, but around the country where moratoriums are expiring, we are headed for disaster. And so um, I just think it's really important to understand that it is a part you asked, can we fix things under this current system? I don't believe that we can. I'm open to hearing um, ideas, but we have decades upon decades of evidence to show that it just does not work. So it is incumbent upon us to try something different. I think what's been helpful for, for many of our families in Oakland is the Oakland Community Land Trust, which is what we suggested to Wedgwood to sell this property to the land trust. So this will be the last time it's ever flipped uh, for this ridiculous profit. Uh, and then it stays in community control at affordable rates in perpetuity. Um, and some people argue that, you know, land trusts are not the best model, but we've been able to save um, dozens of folks from eviction and homelessness and potentially having to leave the state or even the country through the use of um, community land trust, this community land trust. So I, I think that's one of the models, but we definitely have to have some type of social housing that is funded in the in the um, responsibility of not just our city, but our county and state and federal governments, because it's not, this is, is not tenable. And that's putting it, it politely. This is very, very serious. People are literally dying on the streets. And there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands more headed there um, due to COVID. So, you know, it, it is a, a component of greed and extreme uh, capitalism that pushes people to make the highest profit possible, um, not considering the actual functional need of people to have safe and secure housing. And yeah, only a, a, limited, a limited few can uh, operate under our current housing system. Yeah, and the best way to keep people off of the streets is to make sure that they stay in their homes and, and to make sure that they're like alive in their, you know, alive and healthy in their own homes. Um, but to step back, you mentioned earlier the uh, the Black New Deal, and this is a statement, uh, a set of a statement and set of demands that uh, the Anti Police Terror Project and Community Ready Corps co-authored. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about these set of demands and especially how they came about in this particular uh, this particular moment? I know among the demands are things like reparations and uh, access to mental and physical health care, but also forgiveness of background and an end to evictions. Uh, can you tell us how these sort of demands came about? Sure. Uh, CRC and APTP actually convened and facilitated a process for several individuals and organizations to come together um, around what was happening in COVID and to put their best thinking together around a set of demands that could be lifted up at the local um, and local and state levels to address the disparities that have ex existed, but have been exacerbated under um, COVID-19. So um, the process, it, it, oh my goodness, I think it's like 14 pages of demands or ideas or plans. So I'm in the process of, of actually turning 
all of that information from the 40 plus organizations who contributed to it um, into a set of programs with the help of uh, some folks from a, a think tank in Oakland that I, I refer to. Um, so that it's not just demands, but it's actual functional programs that we can work to that are time-based, um, you know, we're in, in really critical times, but also impactful and address the historic harm that all the folks that came to the table to create this were attempting to do. Um, like the, the thinking was, what, why are we here? Why do we continue to be here? Particularly in the city of Oakland where, um, the Panthers are, you know, renowned, right? Why are we still here 50 years later fighting for the exact same things, if not worse, because our numbers are dwindling? And I, I want to make it clear that while I um, don't think that Black folks are the only folks impacted by housing, I do believe that if we address the needs of the most marginalized, the most negatively impacted, will address the conditions for everyone that are experiencing um, housing insecurity and housing injustice. Um, I believe that we're the canary in the mine and just like the ignoring the situations that we've been through historically in this country leads to the repetition of these same issues. Uh, I believe that if we don't rectify the historic harm of white supremacy and housing, um, we'll continue to get it wrong for everybody which is why you're seeing, I think, even college students, people with college degrees not being able to uh, have places to stay because the same carnivorous system that chewed and spit up Black folks is um, doing the same thing to everybody because the profit is key. That point about um, forgiving past rents is a really important one too because um, I think we should always remember that these the moratoria on uh, evictions isn't the same as rent forgiveness, that these people who aren't able to pay rent um, are just accumulating debt right now and uh, with the expectation that they're going to be able to pay this back. And I don't think that's that reflects reality because a lot of these people are low-wage earners to begin with and they've lost the jobs. And even if they do find jobs, um, uh, but, you know, it's not going to be enough to be able to to repay all of that back pay. Exactly. But, but corporations, um, major housing corporations or landlords or um, commercial uh, residential um, firms are getting bailed out. So it, it's interesting that the people who are making the most money off these exorbitant rents are also getting bailed out by um, CARES uh, funding. So we're demanding, and that's what people are standing up to say right now, is like enough bailing out these corporations, put the money in the hands of the people who actually need it to um, to live, to buy groceries and, and have running water and electricity. And um, we can't forget our folks who are, are living on the streets. Like we, the people need a bailout. The people need like some kind of answers because, um, you know, that's that's how we're going to pull through this. If a, a handful of corporations are OK, but the population is decimated, uh, it does no one any good. So, yeah, bail out people. 
One thing I wanted to ask you was about one of these videos that you appeared in in January outside the home where the that the moms were occupying and someone I think a reporter asked you, this company that owns the home, Wedgwood, has offered to put the moms up in a house for two months or to pay for their lodging somewhere for a couple of months um, if they leave the house. And you gave a really great response to that and you, and you where you make the distinction between charity and permanent stable housing. We want people to understand that Catholic Charities is not housing. What this offer, and we say offer, was, was two months in a shelter and to pay for moving expenses. So anyone who's tried to get housing in the city of Oakland knows that two months is nothing. One of the mothers has been homeless for six years. So add two months to six years, and that is not enough time to find affordable housing in the city of Oakland, where the average one-bedroom apartment is $2,500 a month. The, the housing wage in Oakland is $40.88 per hour. That means there is no housing available to working people in this city. And so a couple of things. I wanted to see if you could just kind of uh, tell us what, you know, what where you think the moms would be right now if they had accepted that offer. Um, where, where are they right now? What, what happened to them? Um, and then also maybe elaborate on that point a, uh, about that distinction between charity and justice? Well, I think uh, had we not taken that action, I think things would be different around the country, around the world. We were getting calls from housing justice uh, organizers and activists and just you know regular people that just wanted a decent place to live. We were getting calls and emails from all over the world. Like, thank you. Thank you for lifting us up. We're fighting this and and. Portugal. We're fighting this in the Philippines. We're fighting this in London. Um, and then all cities all over the country. So thank you for highlighting what we're struggling with here. Now I'm going to continue. Um, so I think the movement, the housing justice movement, the movement to make housing a human right, um, would maybe be a little stagnant. Um, it was until that point, we just said it in a lot of our chants. And, and demonstrations. Um, now it's a constitutional amendment that'll go through the assembly for California in the next session. Um, and we're working on, you know, making these policies real across the country. And congressional um, representatives are asking how they can support. So I think we would be, we wouldn't be further along in the public realization that, yeah, we do need to make housing a human right. And now with COVID um, really changing the face and the shape of um, how we will operate in the world in general, it, it's becoming that much clearer that we need a human right to housing to make sure that even without um, income or with limited income, you know that you'll have a place to stay. And so the moms right now are... Um, looking, well, they're awaiting for the re, the rehab, the rehabilitation process to conclude at mom's house. So we were able to raise the funds to cover the costs that Wedgwood paid for the house and um, are in the, the second phase, which is um, getting it suitable for um, residential living. 
And so, yeah, we're just talking to contractors, getting quotes to uh, start the process. COVID has also slowed that down quite a bit. So we're um, behind schedule um, for where we intended to be um, before this virus, um, but we're still on course in terms of promoting the legislation we're trying to promote and getting the house turned around and back into community control. Despite the uh, COVID setbacks, that's a really phenomenal set of victories. Um, I congratulate y'all on, on on fighting for that. That's really inspirational, and I'm amazed to hear, amazed but not surprised, rather, that you're also inspiring people across borders and around the world and in different places and circumstances. But that you know your struggles are shared and. No, I was thinking that our struggles are shared across borders, but they're also like generationally shared, you know, shared across ages and generations and all of that. And pedagogy and education, it seems to be an important through line for your work. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you founded a, a school called Shule Vista Academy some years ago and also now participate in a popular education program called Creating Freedom Movements. Um, can you tell us about how this sort of pedagogical work ties to the rest of your activism? In other words, how you see like education as being lin- linked to agitation and organizing and, and liberation? Well, I think it's important, but I don't think it's necessary. Uh, I do believe po- political education and study is necessary, but I've, I've done it informally and formally and there, there are pros and cons to both. Um, it wasn't until the Moms for Housing struggle that I was actually comfortable saying, you know what? Yeah, I was homeless too, because there's so much shame that comes from it, but also the experiences that I've gained and the knowledge and wisdom that I've gained uh, didn't come through the traditional uh, pedagogical framework that I received with my formal education. So um I think everyone's personal experience can guide them to be active. I, I actually count on that when, when you know, folks are knocking on doors and we're talking to people about what they want to see in their communities. Um, and it's also necessary to learn and just review and study what's been done before, what's what's happening now, um, to increase your educational understanding of different strategies and tactics and what's worked in the past and what hasn't to, you know, be creative about what to do uh, in the future. So um, there is a, there's a through line there and there's a, a path that is not even connected that I think both are, both are so necessarily and have been relevant to my um, cultivation here as an organizer. We actually would, were wondering if we could ask about those kinds of experiences that you've had, which drive you to action and how you became, you know, an activist, how you became a founder of many organizations and just that, that motivation to advocate for justice causes. I think it has to do a lot um, with my parents. Um, my dad is from, my, my mother and father are both from the Deep South, one from Mississippi, one from Alabama. And both of their parents, their families moved from the deep south to avoid the terrorism of that time, um, post World War II, um, to create better lives for um, my parents. So both families left during the Great Migration and worked really hard to have some kind of middle class existence. But they, um, my grandfather's 
um, maternal and paternal uh, did a lot. Like my my paternal grandfather was a first city council member in in our city, and um, I I just remember a lot of sacrifice and doing for everybody around them. My parents were the same way. Um, my dad would give away his services as a journeyman electrician to people who needed them, and my mom was constantly feeding and clothing, um, you know, women who were in abusive situations and living in shelters. Um, and I, I also have a very strong parochial foundation. Uh, and it was a dogmatic way to embed service and sacrifice into, uh, into our lives, but it's something that's, that stayed with me even outside of, you know, shedding that kind of, um, that upbringing. So I've always been a part of, of service, uh, spaces. And so it, I guess it just came naturally. Um, and having children, I, I, I wanted to be in education, but you know, as they got older and we were evicted from, uh, my home that I used as an educational space, um, I started getting more active into social justice fights that were really close to home and that was housing, right? So we've been evicted by unscrupulous landlords quite a few times or attempted. I've actually never been evicted, but um, the last time that caused us to, to move, my family to move from West Oakland to East Oakland was, you know, a landlord that said, hey, I'm selling my house. You have a few weeks to get out. It's like, wait, no, that's not how this works. But just being so exhausted and just tired of going through this on a regular basis, you know, we left. And so, you know, there have been periods where we've lived in hotels or cars. And so it was a no brainer um, that housing had to be one of the uh, primary areas of struggle because uh, my own personal experiences and understanding how closely even educational attainment for, for children is so connected to stability and housing security. So um, that's a little bit about why and how I got into this. And it's something that I, I, I definitely consider doing until we have some resolution for the rest of my life. And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. Thank you to our guest, Carol Fife, director of the Oakland chapter of the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, or ACE. We'll place links to resources related to the topics we discussed, along with a transcript of this episode, on our website at belonging.berkeley.edu slash whobelongs. This has been Mark Abizade. And this has been Irfan Marathi. Thank you for listening.